0: Our episode number two. Speaking of number two, yeah, yeah, I don't want to be number two. No, either.
1: <laughs> it's, uh, but it could be a good thing, you know, it really could be a good
0: thing. But number two is a good thing sometimes.
1: Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, unless you're Ricky Bobby. <laughs> but, um, anyway, we're not there. So today we've got exciting guests. We have, uh oh. I don't know. How, how do we describe you, Christian? Um, uh, a serial entrepreneur, chef. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, creative creature, slightly confused. You had totally in front insane, of, right?
0: You had cereal in front of any, anything <laughs> it sounds kind of creepy.
1: Well, I was thinking more like Fruity Pebbles or something. Yeah, but okay. uh,
0: <laughs> like that. I'll, hey, I'll go with that. I'm good. Um, that's cool.
1: So we've got Christian here today, and Christian. Um, you know, you you've been an incredible entrepreneur in our community. It's been interesting to watch from the days of being down, way back in the day when we were both trying to trying to make a living, yeah, n- rubbing nickels, exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. running
1: nickels, and then you you see maybe just take a few minutes and kind of walk us through. Columbia where you how you started here kind of your transition because I mean you've gone from being partners to to starting your own concepts to the F2 productions Mm -hmm. which is you know if you haven't been, folks, you need to sign up and, and get on the list. This is an incredible event's done at City Roots, and I'm hoping we can take that event and kind of move it around town to some other places. I oh, think it would be cool yeah. to do some, some fun events, which we can talk about it yeah. later. Um, but maybe just walk a little bit of uh, of kind of how you started in, in the hospitality industry here in Columbia.
0: Well, here in Columbia, so basically it started I moved here uh, – after leaving Minnesota, um, at the University of Minnesota, I, I pretty much kind of graduated from both the university and the and uh, culinary uh, St. Paul College, the culinary program, within about a week of each other, and then moved down here so my um, now ex wife uh, could go to school here uh, because James Dickey was still professor emeritus over at the university, and. I got down here and it was '93, so we were still kind of in a recession, and nobody was really looking for what I went to school for. So, and I've been in the in the food and beverage industry since my as soon as I got out of the army. I uh, so I got a job down in Charleston when, when I lived down there, and I was a waiter, and I just stayed a waiter throughout um, my entire college career because it was there's no other job in college that pays you that much, so. I stayed in that. So when I got here, I was like, well, I don't know. I'll figure out what I'm going to do and I'll get a job waiting tables or bartending for a while until I figure out what I want to do. And that just quickly snowballed. I I was bartending at Garibaldi's and I got a call there while I was working one day asking if I'd be interested in managing a restaurant. And I said, yeah, sure. And it turned out to be Longhorn Steaks. And it was Bill Dukes and Cal Jones, his right-hand man. And they, uh, they asked me to come down, so I went through their training program and I managed Longhorn Stakes for a short while. And then I was told uh, after a quick trip up to Charlotte to see Blue Marlin up there prior to it opening, I was like, That's a really cool concept. I think it has legs. Didn't understand why I was there. And then they said, Then Bill told me, He was like, Well, because we want you to be the general manager of the one that we're opening in Columbia. So opening the one in Columbia was to me. That was my kind of graduate school for the restaurant business because I got to see how a restaurant opened and all the different things and being general manager, I did all the hiring and everything. So coming out of that, I was like, okay, I know how to do this. So we didn't stay there very long and shortly, I mean, probably we opened in October and I think by late February, something like that, we, we were gone from there and we opened up Mr. Friendly's on March 15th of 95 and then... It went mr friendlies we expanded mr Friendly's to dinner and expanded the space and then it was gervain and vine and then it was solstice and then it was rosso and then it was uh bourbon and then black rooster so it's just not made did i forget any gervain vine did i say that yeah one? you yeah, said okay, that I one did. okay good yeah i don't know it's been six or seven and then uh and then Vanessa approached me about uh, Farm to Table, and the, which we changed the name to F2T Productions and then Honey River Catering. And prior to opening Bourbon, <laughs> prior to opening Bourbon, we were kind of waiting for construction to happen and everything. And we were just kind of chomping on the bit at the bit to get something started. And that was when it was like kind of that Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland thing of let's put on a show. And we decided to put on the Great American Whiskey Fair, which is now This will be its tenth year this fall, and it's the largest whiskey show in the southeast. So,
1: in Columbia, South Carolina, I want to note in Columbia, South Carolina. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) I know. It. it, You know, and uh, that was the funny thing. It was like we looked around. Like, do you do a quick Google search for whiskey shows around the nation, and you've got you know Whiskey Fest and you know that the Shankin Productions company puts on and stuff like that in Chicago, New York. Yeah, big cities. And we went to them and it was really disappointing. Like it was just, it's not a very, uh, it's
1: not interactive as much as you think at all,
0: at all. No. I mean, they, they've set them up in big convention, big sterile convention centers. None of the people that are working behind the table seem like they want to be there. And there are a lot of brands that just don't even want to be there or aren't there. I saw, I remember seeing Julian Van Winkle at, uh, in San Francisco when I, kind of skipped the line and went around to the back of the table. And I was like, you don't look like you're having fun. And he just out of the corner of his mouth would kind of just whisper. He's like, I'm never doing this again. And, you know, it was a it was a donkey show. I mean, there are people throwing up in the middle of the floor. I was like, oh, we can do much better than this. So, but yeah, so that's, that. I mean, that's the, I guess that's the Cliff Notes version of how we got to sitting here at this table drinking Good bourbon.
1: So, how how funny is this? Because I'm
0: still doing the same damn thing, and here you're mayor. uh, (laughs) Different strokes, I guess, right?
1: You know, for me, it was interesting because two things that came out of that that I found interesting is, you know, I had forgotten about you waiting at Garibaldi's. Yeah. Because I was bartending back then, and we were making so much money in five points. Uh, I mean, y- you couldn't you couldn't go get a job and make as much cash as we were making no. o- on the weekends at five points. It was incredible. I mean, it was so thing. Here I was, twenty two years old, and we would go to Garibaldi's to eat dinner before we went to work our Friday night shift at yeah. the local bar. I mean, yeah. that's that's how crazy it was. It was it was oh, insane.
0: Yeah, F and B people were some of our best customers. Oh my gosh. I mean, those guys from Elbow Room, you know, like. Granted, they're probably in jail now, but it was crazy. They would come in they would come in with a table of like twelve, twenty you know, twelve to twenty people and buy, be buying bottles of our most expensive champagne and stuff. And I was just like,
1: Wow. We'd go sit at the bar nuts. literally and go have crispy flounder and nice cabernet or, or, or whatever was that night and dessert and then go bartend. Yeah. And, and stay up till five in the morning and then go back up the hill to Durkin's and <laughs> exactly. Sneakers back then. Yep. And, and, and keep drinking till the sun came up. But Mr. Friendly's oh, at I that know, point, Because
0: I would come into Mr. Friendly's at seven o'clock in the morning to start prepping. And I'd see some some of you guys coming out of there at 7 a.m. <laughs>
1: But it was so funny. I remember when I remember the day when, when y'all bought Mr. Friendly's, you know, everybody freaked out when you started to change the menu and everything because oh, you we changed it the first day. Because the, the the shoestring uh onion rings were like what yes. everybody went there for. I mean it was it was literally That's what was the what
0: only it, thing I think everybody went there for.
1: But it was so different from what it is today, and people forget
0: that, that it was a really a place before y'all yeah. bought it and changed Literally, it. They had, three, they had three locations. And so what's funny about that, so that was their last location. They had one downtown, and they had one somewhere else, and uh, it was named Mr. Friendly, so we couldn't figure out why. And on the back of the kitchen door was this little like mushroom-headed guy. It, was like, it looked like a mushroom with eyeballs on it. Mm-hmm. And we found out from the family later on that that was a character in a high school comic strip that the kid, that the parent's kid drew. And he called him Mr. Friendly. And, uh, hmm. yeah.
1: Mushrooms, Mr. Friendly. Yeah, right.
0: You <laughs> <laughs> go a lot of different ways with that one. But he, uh, so, but yeah, we, so they had sold, they had closed all the other locations, sold that last location to, uh, a sweet young girl named Dale who had a horrible <laughs> boyfriend and uh, they bought it together and then he just would constantly steal money from it and she was like I got to get out of this and so she sold it to us and literally we bought it we signed the paperwork when she finished her lunch shift on March fifteenth, nineteen 1995 and as soon as she walked up we had toasted with a glass of champagne she walked out the door and as soon as she was out of sight we made a phone call and like five minutes later all the trucks from the food companies pulled up and we threw pretty much everything she was serving in the trash, cause it was like the lowest quality stuff. And we brought in all fresh produce and all new stuff. And we literally prepped from that moment all the way until we opened for lunch the next day. And when we opened, it was, everybody knew that we would, everybody knew that we were opening it. So everybody showed up and it was a complete gong show. Because the kitchen was not set up properly, ticket times got out. Of, I mean, it was it was a gong show. But within a couple of days, we had it all figured out, and, and just I don't know. The rest was kind of history.
1: So for, for folks who don't know the history, all all of you left Blue Marlin together.
0: We were asked to leave. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go. Gonna... Well, it, okay. So here, I, in, so with hindsight being 2020. <laughs> they didn't have much of a choice it was a huge game weekend and they needed uh they needed staff and we were already short so but they found out that we had purchased Mr. Friendly's so I come into work and uh I remember Bill Dukes and Cal were, were there and they were like hey let's have a quick meeting outside and I was like okay cool so I go and sit outside and we're you know we're going over like like what's going on for the week and everything like that and they go oh and by the way um so you, you bought a restaurant? And I was like, yeah, you know, we bought a little lunch place down in Five Points. And, uh, you know, cause we don't do lunch at Blue Marlin, you know, we can, we figure we'll hire a couple people and, and, you know, run that. And they were like, uh, no, that's not gonna work. You guys are gonna need to go. Well, at first he thought it was just me and Harold. Yeah and uh so they were already it was it was already rough because you're losing your general manager and your manager and then before we left i just said well we better let john know too john Campania. he was the assistant kitchen manager and really did like the bulk of the work in the kitchen we're like we better let him know too and they were like why and it was like well because he's the third partner and they could just you could see their faces just kind of go white and i kept saying the whole time i was like look it's it's wednesday or thursday it's like just keep us on through the weekend because it's a game weekend you're already short-staffed you don't want to do this you don't want to go into this weekend with all of us we can keep this quiet and then come next monday we won't be there nope 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 and I, we've got phone calls that entire weekend from the from the staff going, it's a gong show. It's everything's falling apart. We don't know what to do. I, I <laughs> Come remember back, when please. That yeah, they were like a lot of the staff was like they were all like we're gonna quit. We're gonna all quit and and you know to support you guys. And we're like don't quit. It's a it's a waiting tables job. Like just stay there, and it's a great place to work. Just stay there, you know. So yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Good times.
1: You Good know, memories. <laughs> it's so funny because you look back so. I opened up Birds on a Wire in 1994. Christian and and Harold and John came in in '95, and, and really, other than Motor Supply, y'all were the only people who were really truly taking this this fresh approach to a menu. Well, I mean, and yeah. you look at it. I mean, y'all were decades ahead in Columbia. Yeah.
0: Well, but there's a reason for that. So, <clears throat> when when I was in, so when I was in Minneapolis, St. Paul, I worked at the Dakota Bar and Grill, and the and and the name doesn't really do justice for it because it was one of the it was one of the only haute cuisine restaurants in the Twin Cities that was doing. Uh, midwestern cuisine using all fresh ingredients from local farms and chef ken goff was my kind of although he wasn't a mentor because i was a waiter he's who i looked up to Mm -hmm. and it was also the premier jazz club in minneapolis and saint paul so like we had everybody from harry connick jr to roy hargrove and um joshua Redman, and uh, max roach was there before he passed away a lot of like the legends would stop there uh, so when we opened Mr. Friendly's my kind of creative I was kind of more of the creative force behind it like and that was I basically was telling them like this is what we're gonna do but we're gonna do it in the south so we're gonna play jazz music and we are going to source as much as we can locally and do take southern old southern recipes and kind of put a new I, I hate using the word twist but just and a mo- more modern interpretation of it and It was, it was a lot harder than you would expect because Minnesota is not known as an agricultural state and South Carolina is yet in Minnesota, I could get 10 times the, the ingredients. I mean, farmers would literally pull up to the back of our restaurant every morning and you'd just walk out and you'd shop in the back of their trucks, you know, like everything they had just grown. And I thought for sure that was going to be the way South Carolina was. And we had been open for over a year and finally a farmer shows up and it's Emil (laughs) and And so Emil DeFelice is uh, from Soda city market is the first farmer to show up at my door and he's had like a chicken and he had some vegetables and some fresh herbs. And I was like, awesome. I was like, okay, so like if we could get like 40 chickens a week and you know, 30 pounds of this and 30 pounds of that and like bring us a couple pounds of herbs and everything and he was just like silent dead silent for a moment he's like, uh, I don't I don't produce that much And I was like, oh, okay So I would take on my literally my like only day off I would take my motorcycle and I would ride around all around Colombia down every country road in any place that looked like it had a farm where people raised vegetables, I'd pull in and knock on the door and just say, hey, I'd introduce myself and tell them, if you ever have extra vegetables, like if you're not a real farmer, if you just grow a lot of stuff for fun, if you ever have extra, here's our number at Mr. Friendly's, just stop by. And that's how, I mean, that's how we had to do it. it's
1: It's so funny because I used to go to the farmer's market when it was on Bluff Road. And had get up in the morning first yep. thing, and there was a handful of people that I bought stuff. And then I got to know this guy from Cameron, South Carolina, who grew sweet potatoes. And we, we, I mean, we literally went through, I don't know how many boxes. It got to a point where he showed up with just a, a truckload, and he, he built a trough behind our restaurant and just poured <laughs> them in there. Because we were going through so many sweet potatoes. But it was interesting back then. It was very limited of what you could get oh they didn't grow much. it was no and it was very seasonal i mean truly seasonal where today you know you could just get anything you want but it was it was crazy back oh yeah you know oh wow you know i got tomatoes today i don't have any tomorrow i don't yeah uh,
0: you know oh yeah yeah. we had a so we had a farmer when we opened solstice we we found a a local farmer who actually stopped by and he was like well just tell me like he brought a seed catalog and he was like tell me what you want Uh, me to uh to grow and I was like oh great so we had like kyoga beets and purple carrots and all this other stuff and he so he finally shows up starts showing up and he shows up with like a basket of of carrots and I was like oh fantastic this is wonderful I was like
1: can I have another 50 pounds
0: (laughs) and he's like oh no that's all of them and I just literally wanted to beat my head on the wall. I was like What? I don't I don't understand. I thought you understood how much I told you how much we go through but, you know, we have beef, you know, beef local ranchers um, would show up and they would say, hey, uh, we raise beef. And I was like, OK, well, we go through about 20 tenderloins a week. And they were like, oh, never mind. You know, so it's just you You, as much as you want to do local stuff, you do have to rely on the on the on big ag and the system to try to to keep the doors open so So, unfortunately you
1: know the as much as i like food i have to ask so here you are you're in minnesota you're working as a waiter in this restaurant talk about food you know you're in there talking about this this farm to table that by the way folks is christian making another drink uh, here on 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 our podcast i wouldn't say
0: pouring bourbon is making a drink but you know, here if we are. The case, um, <clears throat> I'm an excellent mix-ologist. just in case anybody's
1: worried. It's <laughs> a, it's it's after five o'clock somewhere. It is. Um, this is but delicious. what wh- was the menu type back then? I mean, when I mean when I think of Midwest, I think of meat and potatoes. Everything meat and potatoes. You know, kind of more hearty. I mean, when you were working at that restaurant, what what was the menu like? <sighs> so. I'm curious, yeah. Personal,
0: right? Well, so like one of the recipes that I took from there that I think still holds up really well, and we do it every fall, is um, and it was a very seasonal menu. I mean, Chef Goff, he's still a, he's a really good friend of mine still, and one of these days I'm gonna get his butt down here to do a dinner with us. But he, like one of the menu items that we would have in the fall when when local apples would come in was a, was a local brie and apple soup and so we would take brie that was made at a local creamery and apples and new potatoes simmer all simmer the potatoes and the apples together in uh, chicken stock puree it until it was smooth and then fold in brie i mean it was a super simple recipe and it was absolutely spectacular and then minnesota the biggest game fish in minnesota and actually our state fish is uh the walleye And so we would do, he would, we would constantly have a preparation of walleye on the menu. And I mean, he just, he would take, he would take the things like, you know, like you said, meat and potatoes. So his meat and potatoes would be some local, uh, either lamb or uh, we had bison up there. So it would be like a lamb and bison meatloaf with, you know, I mean, it was always something that he could source locally and then it had to have, it was always seasonal. That you never, we never had, like strawberries in Minnesota, strawberries, you're lucky if you're getting them in July. So strawberries would not hit the menu till July. Blueberries would not hit the menu until late July, early uh, August and that's when they are, that's when they're growing in Minnesota. And in Minnesota, you know, we get wild, Blueberries. We don't get the big Michigan-style, you know, um, farm-raised ones. There were people. He had, we actually had foragers that would go out and bring us gallons of the little, tiny, super intense blueberries oh, that we gr- that I grew up with. So it's like what my grandmother had in her, her yeah, in her garden. Exactly. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. They're not all. It's not just a giant berry that's blue. It's a mm. little super intense berry that's but the flavor is unbelievable yeah it's like four times that of a big blueberry i mean it's it's all it's a ton of flavor packed into a tiny little package
1: sounds like a starburst teeny or something yeah you just said you
0: know yep (laughs) <laughs> Starburst tea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You will not find that on Bourbon's menu. <laughs> no, I was laughing.
1: Yeah, because I like do when you started to describe it. I just think of that guy doing the commercial and he yes. comes in, yeah. you know, and the uh, little and jet. It explodes. It explodes. <laughs> but you're right. That, that flavor is, yeah. is is so intense. Yep. And it's hard. You can't replicate that flavor. No, 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 no. No matter how hard no. you try. And no. you can tell the difference between somebody who's gone and got a true wild blueberry verse. Yeah. Reverse. I went and lived in
0: Spain um, about four or five years ago for about a month. That was like my goal in life. Like I I found a notebook from like when we first started the restaurant. I found this old notebook and uh, listed in the like the things that I wanted to accomplish in life or, you know, goals and stuff. One of them was to live in a different country uh, once a year for anywhere from three weeks to a month. And so finally like 5 years ago I was able to do it for the first time and I went and lived in Valencia, Spain for a month. And I remember going to a restaurant there and it was one of those type of restaurants where you know you get 14 courses and they're all like small courses and the chef is, you know, I mean everything is super spectacular. And one of the courses was literally wild strawberries that are picked in the mountains just outside of Valencia, and they're only around for a couple weeks. And honestly, that was like one of the, I mean, that brought me home immediately from like just kicking around with my friends out in the woods, and you would see that little, you'd see that little white blossom in those little those little plants on the ground, and you'd be like, oh, check it out, stop, I think we found some strawberries. And you'd dip down, look underneath, and these little tiny, you know, smaller than a gumdrop strawberries, more flavor than a giant one you'd get at the grocery store like and that was an entire course and i was like this is brilliant like you you like it would have been a, a travesty had he incorporated that into some sort of dish instead it was just this little tiny bowl and it had the strawberries and the and the blossoms and a couple of the leaves in there and i was like oh yeah this is this guy knows what he's doing
1: it's funny, some of the simplest dishes are the ones you remember the most oh, over
0: yes. everything. I mean, I
1: think about the stuff my grandmother made. Yeah, no. I spent summers with them, and and it was always the simplest dish that I loved, uh-huh. and I craved more than anything, and, and it, it, it just It just makes you feel good.
0: And you can never replicate it either. And never, never. No matter how never. much you try, because you can't bring that. You can't bring the atmosphere back. <clears throat> That's the thing like people will come to the restaurant and they'll say, "Oh, well, I had this, you know, this super cheap local Italian wine when we were in Italy and like nothing compares to it." And I'm like, "That's not what you're tasting. That's not that wine. If I were to bottle that wine, bring it back over to over here, serve it to you in a restaurant with a dish that's incongruent with that area, you would say This is just horrible plonk. Like this is not good wine. What you're tasting is that entire experience. You're sitting in a in a in a you know in a town square that's probably a thousand years old. It was some nona cooking a meal and bringing it out and pouring that glass of wine for you in a you know in a in a jelly jar, and it's the greatest experience ever. If you were to take that bottle home and be sitting at your house and you know, eat it with your Chef Boyardee, it's just not going to come across the same, you know, that you can't replicate that. It,
1: it, 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 it's so funny. I can think of so many meals like that that, mm-hmm. that, that draw me. All right, got to ask a serious question in this discussion. It's, These have
0: all been very serious questions.
1: Okay, There's a moment of silence there. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, they're all very interesting. You know, <clears throat> I think one of the things is, you know, we, we've we adapted this open Columbia and really trying to change the way we operate to make it easier. You've opened a bunch of businesses here. Yeah. I mean, what do you see the disadvantages and advantages of uh, uh, of that? You know, how can, what do you see in your, of what you've experienced that it can make it better so that the next generation doesn't do what you and I did then you and right. I scranted. Well, look, first of all, let me, let me put a disclaimer in here. When we were opening restaurants in the nineties, it was an incredible atmosphere in Columbia. People supported local restaurants like I'd never seen before. Oh yeah. And we I made agree. a lot of damn mistakes and we learned <laughs> yeah. from a lot of them,
0: <laughs> but people box. were
1: forgiving, but I mean, unbelievable. Um, uh, atmosphere but today it is more competitive it, there is more there and you know as yeah. we continue to want to grow and capture and and learn i mean what do you see as is opportunities here where do you see the disadvantages here
0: oh boy okay well i still see Colombia in general as a huge th- market that's still i think untapped Mm -hmm. you know i feel like they're if we can attract talent whether that be locally or from out of this market to come here i mean i think they would find a very ripe and welcoming atmosphere to open up their businesses whether that be and i mean you personally i'm just talking restaurants Mm -hmm. but i mean i feel a lot of different things would be you know I think a lot of different industries coming here would would find Columbia to be really uh, open and inviting. I, I think we're the, I don't want to say, I, I, I infamously said years ago after opening bourbon, I remember telling Mayor Benjamin, I was like, I'm never opening another thing in Columbia proper again, because this was just way too painful. And um, there was a disconnect, I think, between the people that want to do things and open up businesses, and the, there was a disconnect between us and the people who, I guess, regulated those things in order for, for those things to happen, and it, the the difficulty that we always found was that when you talked to the people that were that seemed to be the gatekeepers and were holding you back from doing things those people never felt like they were the ones that were holding you back, but they also couldn't point the finger in any direction as to who it was that was holding you back from doing things. So it was, you know, it was funny because I remember when we opened Bourbon, if, if it hadn't been for Ryan Coleman being in that kind of new position of like ombudsman to, to mm-hmm. like, he was kind of the guy that helped turn no's into yeses for us. Like we would, you know, we'd submit something and we'd get a no back and we'd be like, but there'd be no reasoning behind it.
1: Sometimes I think that, that, that it was easier to say no than try to figure well, out how no, to make it work. Well, no, no, exactly.
0: <laughs> and, and you know, and, and that's the thing. That's what I mean is that when you would then go to those offices and you would talk to them, that's that was the gist that you got back from them. It was just like, you know, we can't say yes to this because it's unprecedented or we, you know, we've never dealt with something like this before. So it was, you know, and they didn't like come right out and say it was easier to give you a no, but you know, if you worked with them for a while, they were willing and able to find a way to get to yes. So it just was like, what was so frustrating back then was just the fact that you had to go through that process. It was like, oh my God, I'm trying to open a business that's, you know, gonna generate a ton of tax money for the city. And every step of the way is just no, 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 and it wasn't just on a city level. Trust me, it was on a state level too. I mean, I, we went around and round with, with the uh, you know the ABL licensing and the Department of Revenue and everything like that, and it was just like that was, you know. But when you would finally get them out of their office and to the location, they go, "Oh, I see. Well, this isn't a problem at all." And it's like, "Well, then why is it taken?" so many weeks to get to this. I mean, I remember at Rosso going through, I mean, it literally took two months for us. We, we sat empty for two months before we opened because we could not get an answer from anybody about um, a uh, an exhaust fan for the wood-burning pizza oven. I, I had to call Nikki Setzler, who's a West Columbia representative, because I didn't know who my representative was down there. I just knew Nikki personally. I was like, just please, just anything you can do to get somebody to answer my question. And, and then just out of nowhere, the head of DHEC shows up and he goes, oh yeah, you just need to put an eyebrow fan over the top of the opening. And I was like, And
1: you couldn't tell me that two months ago.
0: <laughs> two months, we've been waiting for that. And he's like, I'm sorry, I, did, I figured somebody below me would have told you that by now. And we're like, no, nobody did. Like, no, so... There's just been a kind of a disconnect between all those people, and I think um, they have the answers. That's you know, that's that's the the optimistic side of it. It's like they have the answers, and they want they. There's nobody I've met ever with the city or the state or the county or anybody that doesn't want you to open something. Like there, there's those people just don't exist. They want you to open something. It's just that sometimes they're in a position where nobody has told them that it's okay to, to allow something to happen. They're just terrified that they'll get in trouble for it, or there's just never been a path shown to them. Like they go, oh yeah, you can do that. You just have to fill out this and this, and we have to have someone come down and inspect that, and then you'll be good to go.
1: Autonomy is the word I think about yeah. giving people the autonomy, autonomy to do their job, like
0: we do in the restaurant business. It's like if a server, if he if a server comes to your table and he or she is like, "Oh, you don't like that," they have the autonomy to go back to the POS system and delete it off, get you something new, or just take it off the off the you know the ticket for you if you you know you're. They don't have to come and find a manager to do it or, or wonder if it's okay you know like oh his steak was overdone it's like well tell us right away because we can make a new one immediately oh they didn't wait they waited until the end of the meal and everybody was done it's like oh well, then take it off their meal and yeah. it's like give them a dessert give them something else really quickly so i don't want them to leave experience here. yeah like what would you want somebody to do for you in this situation <laughs> you have that authority and autonomy to do that and that's i think the key
1: I always used to tell people, I said, you know, when somebody complains, you have to take it as a compliment. Mm-hmm. Because if they didn't care
0: enough, they'd never tell you. Exactly. They'd walk out of there, but they'd tell all their friends. And, and So and, and when they I said, tell you, they care enough. So fix it. So fix it. While Do you whatever. Can. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. Well, I, I may have lost money on that steak, but the reality is, I really didn't because they're going to come back because they left with a positive.
0: Exactly, experience. and that's what. And, and so, to anybody listening to this, if you're ever in a restaurant. Speak up. <laughs> Seriously, while you're there, don't wait until you get home to speak up about it. Don't, it's too late. Don't, don't go to the internet. Don't, yeah, don't complain about it in the car on the way home and then get on an app and, and give one star. while well, they didn't, you know, my steak was overcooked. We stopped by your table and asked if everything was okay, and you looked at us and smiled and said, everything's fine. I obviously wasn't. Tell me, and I'll fix it. Like, I I, I personally... You know, I mean, I remember one night, this was at the Dakota Bar & Grill. I remember one night, there was a couple that came in. They were an elderly couple. I say elderly. They're probably my age now. <laughs> <laughs> we are there. Cause I know you have AARP and I know I do. <laughs> I mean, uh, so, but they had come in to celebrate their birthday, uh, her birthday. They were sitting together, I mean, they were this. They were the couple that's been married for, like, 30-something years. They're in their mid-50s or early 60s, and they're, they still sit next to each other in a booth, you know? I mean, they were such a sweet, wonderful couple. I mean, and I remember at the end of the meal, like, she, I came by the table and she said that uh, everything was great, everything's wonderful, everything's great, and I finally came by, like, He had finished his meal, and she was like, I don't know, one-third of it into it. And I, I just, I had to drag it out of her. And she was just like, I just, I may have ordered the wrong thing. It's just not. I remember she ordered the trout. This is like 30 years ago, and I still remember this. She ordered the trout, and she just didn't care for it. And I felt so bad. I remember I was like about to tear up, like, this is your birthday, and you are waiting till now and I was like what on the menu did you what was your second choice and I immediately ran back in the kitchen and fortunately I worked at a restaurant where the back of the house and the front of the house got along so the back of the house was right away like wow. that
1: is a war by the way yes. for people <laughs> who, who don't know that yes, they're there it they're, can be yes
0: and they were just and I was just like you know I need a walleye uh, I need a walleye entree on the fly and they had one almost finished for another ticket, and they were like, "We can sandbag this ticket until we can get another one prepared. Just take this one," and I had it out to her like you know within thirty seconds, and uh, and it made all the difference in the world. But I was like, had she not said anything, you know, I was like, so you have to understand. I mean, people who were listening to this, you-, you have to understand that like in the restaurant business, it's all we care about. Like I I always used to joke years ago. This is like twenty some years ago. I used to joke about like my first tattoo was going to be "Born to Serve." You know, because between the military and and the hospitality business, my entire life has been around serving, and if I'm not doing it well, like then I'm failing, and I don't want to go home at night and think about failing. Like I don't, I don't ever want to consider myself a failure. So
1: it's so funny you say that because you know, um, <clears throat> we I, I tell I told my kids this. I said you at some point you have to go wait table somewhere. Yeah, because it's a life skill that you see people at their best and their worst and any employer will applaud you
0: that you did it. Number one. Yes, definitely.
1: Second, I've always said it would be great in America like so my family's from Switzerland. I almost had to go serve in the military, but I escaped that (laughs) summer before they came and got me. But. If you're gonna
0: serve anywhere, come on. Dude, it's seriously. Fu- yeah, it was football season. Switzerland. Oh, it was football. <laughs>
1: football season. Okay, all right. Uh, okay. Hey, I don't know about you. <laughs> But woolen uh, uniform <laughs> in, in summertime and missing SEC football was not a choice but at it's that point. But
0: in Switzerland. So, <laughs>
1: but, but you say, I mean, God, if you served in the military or served on a public board or had to wait tables as a requirement. yes. To be a citizen, it would change the way people's attitudes are toward each other.
0: I agree, 100. percent I'm a believer. Yeah, now. but right now you'd also be walking around with a Swiss Army knife in your in your pocket and
1: and you know
0: because <laughs> I think that's all. I think those are the only weapons they get.
1: No, you get a gun.
0: <laughs> you do? Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, you get a semi-automatic gun.
0: I don't know what they use them for. <sighs>
1: you know, it's easier Shitty when game. you you go up you, in those Swiss Alps. Yeah, you go up there and kill a <laughs> cow and you have a barbecue. But, yeah. Uh,
0: See, I, that's no, that's that's a military I can get behind.
1: Oh, um, hey, I gotta ask you. Yeah. Um, you've been around Columbia, you've been in the restaurant business, you, you've traveled, you, mm-hmm. you've seen, you've seen, if you could bring back one business to Columbia, ooh, <sighs> what would it be? Oh, God.
0: Oh, that's a tough one.
1: That's why I ask it. I mean, you can't have all softballs
0: on this today. Well, obviously, a professional hockey team. <laughs> really? Yeah. So but that's just—that's as selfish as
1: I am. No, but th- but you know that's so funny you say that. All right. First of all, first question. Because here's
0: the thing that you here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand <clears throat> about a pro- professional hockey. Is that like the inferno? I think the inferno ha- were a disservice to them was having to play in the old in the in the in old the car, yep. yeah in the old coliseum it wasn't made for hockey the sight lines were horrible and everything like that but what i think people love about hockey like it, it's huge in savannah it's huge in a lot of cities around the southeast nashville Na- oh yeah oh nashville. my god it's, it's like <laughs> it's so much fun was, at the Predators. i was game. just in raleigh last week to see to see the canes play the avs and it was packed and it was—it's an electric atmosphere. Um, yeah, that business, but that's selfish. Just like my restaurants, like all my restaurants, I don't—I have—I don't give. I don't think twice about what I'm going to open next based on market research or anything like that. I open what I want.
1: Okay, you segued. You segwayed. So, what's the next one?
0: So. By
1: the way, I do have to put in a plug. I miss the spaghetti and meatballs
0: from Rosso. I know. I miss the pizzas from Rosso.
1: Except when Bertrand was cooking them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I hope he listens
0: to this. I want to make sure he does. (laughs) Ah, Tron. Um... So let's see what. Oh wow, man, what business would I bring back? I'm trying to think. of So you one.
1: got two questions hanging out there. What business? You said hockey. I take that because I think it. W- I think people would just flock to it.
0: Well, they were so close right before the the right before the market crashed in 2007, 2008, because uh, my wife um, at the time, Heather, she worked for one of the law firms that was in the process of doing the deal. That they were gonna put together for the new arena, the hockey docks. Yeah, the hockey docks. Yeah, and they were so close, and then the market dropped, and it fell apart, and I was just heartbroken. Um, I still play with guys that were that played for um, the Inferno. I oh, really and the PD Pride, and yeah. So we still play. Uh, yeah, um, I'm out right now because of hip replacement, but I'll be back in a few more weeks to start playing. Uh, so obviously that'd be one thing that I'd like to bring to town because I think another professional sport. Because okay, if I've got one, if I've got one gripe about uh, semi-pro baseball and baseball in general, like during these l- most recent negotiations, it's like it takes too damn long. Like I don't like in between innings. I don't need to see fans come out and do stupid things on the, and I don't need to see them throw the ball back and forth for. I mean, it literally, it's like, I'm sorry, but when the last out for one team is over, you should have like 30 seconds to switch the field out and have somebody at the bat ready to go. Now, I don't mind like maybe every third inning, like you go three innings, and then you have a little break in between, and then you go in between sixth and seventh, you got a little break, you sing this, the seventh inning song and everything. That's great. But a baseball game should not take that long. <laughs> so... That's my gripe. You
1: heard that first here, folks. That's my gripe. We're changing the rules to Major League Baseball. Yeah,
0: and minor league. And by the way, and this this is—I hope he's listening. Who's the mascot for the Fireflies?
1: Firefly, but I don't know his name.
0: Come on, he's got—he has a name. Come on, everybody. Oh,
1: that's terrible! I don't know his name.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well. Oops! I have to write myself a note. I know. Okay.
1: You don't know it either, so I I don't feel that bad. I
0: forgot. So this was.
1: Mason. No. No way, this Mason jar. It can't be Mason. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it can't be. No. Isn't You're it? just making that up.
1: Hey, there's somebody in the crowd saying it's Mason.
0: Okay. Well, wow. I know it's a, I know it's a Firefly type... Uh, um, I mean, I've got, I've had pictures with him and everything, and uh, I still, to this day... It is. It is Mason. Google does not lie. Okay, Google so, does not all lie. All right, Mason the Firefly. All right, okay that's cool so this is this is a challenge going out to mason the firefly i'm still looking for that dance off in the bourbon. i will wear the bourbon suit to the to a game and and, and challenge you to a dance off all right
1: jason fryer if you're listening
0: i know you're
1: <laughs> and and, and I think there's some local owners, too. I think we can make this happen. So I'm putting that oh, yeah. down on my notes. We're going so to have a dance-off.
0: If you've ever been to the great, the great American Whiskey Fair at 701 Whaley, you will see that at some point during the evening, I come out in the, in the bourbon bottle oh. mascot suit and uh, for pictures with everybody. But I will, I'm still waiting for that dance-off uh, competition. Let's see. The other business that I would bring...
1: Well, What's your? The, the, it ha- so we 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 talked about this, and I ask you, what's the next restaurant venture if you could do one? What would it be?
0: Oh, it's already in the works. Oh well, let's hear about this. So this will be the first time that I'm telling everybody publicly. When uh-huh. does? This, when is this going to air?
1: Soon. <laughs> All
0: right, that's good. Okay, soon as soon as, that's fine. Okay, so, in the old Davino space in the Vista. Uh, we are opening a new restaurant called The Dragon Room. The Dragon Room will be a cocktail bar and Asian izakaya. So, And by Asian izakaya, basically, izakaya translates into uh, basically gather, eat, and drink um, in, a, in a way. So, it, so think of like bourbon and Jervé and Vine, but uh, with Asian tapas. So it'll be like small dishes from all my favorite it, here's the thing like it's gonna be you gotta have a little street street that's like there to it? yeah so it'll become almost like street food from all the different oh, Asian man. countries so, uh, so you know fried scorpions
1: are my favorite
0: Oh are they my favorite street yeah. food I'm sure um, I'm sure we have a local supplier of uh, local scorpions <laughs> hey I got some friends in China they'll <laughs> yeah. set you up so uh, But no, I I, you know like we've got that fantastic uh, you know Asian corridor on Decker Boulevard.
1: Absolutely.
0: I mean, if you if you're listening to this and you've not explored Decker Boulevard and all of the phenomenal uh, uh, Latino and Asian places and African and African place, yeah, that that populate that and and Middle Eastern that populate that corridor. I mean, it, it's called an international corridor for a reason. And if you, if you are struggling for a place to eat any given night, cast your, you know, cast your fears aside and walk into one of these places and just tell them, never been here before, bring out what you would have, like bring out what you would have if you were, if you had family here and they will fill your table with some of the greatest food Colombia has to offer. So my, so here's the thing is that, so the Dragon Room will will offer all those things in smaller portions so that you can literally do a tour through everywhere from Eastern India, all the way up through China, down through Korea, down through thailand bangkok laos philippines uh indonesia all those countries and all the phenomenal street foods and traditional home foods so and a mix and match of of those things so that's that's like i said before completely selfish just like Gervais and vine just like mr friendly just like every restaurant i've opened it's a absolutely completely selfish i'm opening it for me which is ironic because I, I have a hard time eating in my own restaurants because all I do is spend time looking around at what needs to be done and whose water glass needs to be filled and all that. Nonetheless, um, it's completely a selfish endeavor.
1: But it's not selfish because you're filling a gap. Once again, it's yeah, I something I have a but you do care but i don't care you do i care. don't <laughs> you're not you are not blackhearted. do not act like I'm it i'm not black but
0: i don't care like if it was like when i opened Gervais and vine like i started off as just a wine and like wine and cheese bar and and that obviously was not working well it didn't help that you know south by southwest or wherever that restaurant was shut down and left us kind of by yourself by ourselves down there but it was a trip to Spain and Barcelona, and sitting at the bar at Cal Pep, probably one of the most famous tapas bars in uh, Barcelona, that I just, like, just sitting there at the bar, looking at the guys behind the bar, cooking our food, I just looked, I just was like, when I get back, that's what I'm doing. And so when I got back, I put a range behind the bar, and we started doing Spanish tapas, and, you know, it. the rest was history there, that place. I will say, Of all the restaurants that i've owned that was the most fun i ever had because i was young enough like i'm too old now like i'll be honest like i can work in line like one night two nights a week but it kills me um but back then being able to cook the food with my audience literally right behind me and be able to turn around and serve them and talk to them about the food and and introduce them to things they've never had before. Like, I mean, duck breast in this town was like, a ah, a lot of people wouldn't order it. I remember putting it on the menu at Mr. Friendly's and people would never touch it. At Gervais and Vine, I gave away-
1: a th- We've grown up in our palate yeah, in we Columbia. Have,
0: we have. and uh, I mean, I gave away about a thousand of them by like give, just giving a couple slices to people and then they were hooked. They were like, oh, this is duck breast. But I mean to be able to talk to them and interact with them and that staff that I had at the time, it was just a perfect storm of 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 fun. Like I've never had that much fun in the restaurant business and I still have fun. Like I love what I do. I miss I the will, people. I do too. I mean I I I miss, I miss those miss people, people. Like that crew that I had <laughs> there that time at that time. And there's no disrespect to my the staff that I have now, but I'm not as involved as I was. Like, I wasn't working the line every night. I'm not working the line every night like I used to. But that was a, just a magical time. And to see, like, to get a one-star review because you're on a two-hour wait, like, I'll take that one-star review every day and I will brag about it. Like, like two-hour wait, who do they think they are? And I'm like, hey, you know, that's that's... It was just—it was a magical time. So
1: I've always said I'm gonna go work a shift at 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 the Waffle House one night just to to have that vibe of
0: interacting with people and everything being live. So yeah. So okay. So here's the thing. So my my partner Harold at Mister Friendly's—that's where that was his background. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. He and his best friend Mark used to used to run a couple of the Waffle Houses in town, (laughs) actually. You got to learn something again I know. You, you got to ask him one night about the night that they went into a Waffle House kind of drunk after drinking all night. And like the half the staff wasn't there. So they actually jumped behind the line and, and ran the place. <laughs> so were, when, yes. So,
1: so when I was uh, I was back, um, I went to to high school in Virginia in Lynchburg. And there's a place called the, a tea room, the Texas Tavern. And it's only got 15 seats, and it's chili and a cheesy Western, which would had this relish and cheeseburger, and every time you drank, you went in there, and the lady who's been there, she's still there, believe it or not. Really? Darlene is still there oh, today. Oh,
0: that's awesome.
1: So, I was there about four years ago for a reunion, and we went in, and I looked at Darlene, and she goes, oh, no. <laughs> And I said, Darlene, please let me cook. Let me cook. The whole everybody in here is from my class. Let me cook." And I went in there and I cooked cheesy <laughs> nice. westerns and chili back there, just having the oh, time of my life. Right? But those experience, that energy that's back there. I don't think if you've if you've never been in the heat of the moment of a kitchen. Yeah. It, you don't understand the energy that's with it, and one oh, song an can change yes. you, the the way you're working. Oh and, my God! You know, we used to have a line of tickets. I remember having a line of tickets at Birds on the Wire when we first opened, and and I would make I'd make them go play sugar hill gang <laughs> rappers is. delight and i said we're yes. gonna knock this out and we got back there and everybody's singing getting on but you get through it together it's your family it's yeah. so family well and also
0: you you and also you hit you kind of get this like uh physical it kind of overtakes you and you get this like phys- you get into a groove of doing things so i don't know it's almost a uh I don't know. There's a dance that happens, and then you're doing, and you're doing it perfectly. Like you are, you are doing the waltz, and you are doing it absolutely perfectly. Like everyone else on the dance floor is watching you because every movement that you do is with purpose, but with fluidity. I remember one night being at Gervain and Vine, and you know we had so many different items on the menu and a limited amount of space to cook on. And I remember at some point, like like spinning around. And as I turned with the, with the plate, my buddy, Josh, who was my expo, I mean, he's one of my best friends and we just, he was like, I'm only five, seven and he's like six, four and 280 pounds. But the two of us could work back there in this perfect harmony. Big and
1: little Enos. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It is
0: perfect (laughs) harmony. And I remember spinning around with a plate, and as I, he didn't even, he wasn't even looking at me. He was, had his head down, and he moved over. And as he moved over, I set the plate in front of the customer, spun back around, and the guy goes, and I hear the guy say to his wife, he's like, I don't think I've ever seen anything as beautiful in a kitchen as this. He's like, they're moving. Like a dance, like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and I was just like, and I turned. Oh, I know exactly. exactly. I know that the angels trumpets, yeah. <laughs> and it's like a Monty Python moment, and it was just phenomenal. I'm gonna be just, late for the stoning. I mean, exactly. It was so. It was just. I just absolutely loved it. It was just such a phenomenal feeling, and it sucks now. You know, when you, when you get to your mid fifties, and it's like you can't do that as often. It. That that aspect,
1: but you can still do it. You but just I can't can. do it. Just not every night.
0: Not every night. Yeah,
1: hey, Christian, I gotta ask. You know, one of the things that you know, I love venturing around Colombia and trying different restaurants and, and places that some people have never been. What would you say your favorite dish is mm. in Colombia? Wow. And I, I saw your plug for for the arcade which I'm going to go try this oh. Philly steak.
0: Monday nights? Yeah. No. You now you have to remember that like so Monday nights when Transmission Arcade doesn't do their um, <clears throat> they don't do their full menu. So they all they do is Philly cheesesteaks. But so if it's a Monday night and you're looking for something to eat, I highly recommend that. I would say wow, one of my favorite dishes. Oof. Okay, so first first and foremost, I'm going to plug two of my favorite dishes up from my places. All okay? right. Yes. All right. So tied for number one on my list would be the steak frites at Black Rooster. To me, that's just like the perfect meal. I mean, the steak, the cut of the steak, the beef fat fried French fries, a simple salad tossed in a, in a bright zingy vinaigrette, the demi-glace, the maitre d' hotel butter. I get it there. Like every time I go, I was literally, I've got family in town from Minnesota right now. And the other night we went and even though the specials looked fantastic, I go for it all the time. It's my favorite.
1: I order my spices to make my butter from England because it's the only place I can find <laughs> the right blend. Really? I mean, it's crazy, but yeah. I mean, the, that's the blend I grew up tasting. Yeah. But it makes the world of difference. Yeah.
0: So, so that <clears throat> that that's my steak dish in town. The Viet Cajun chicken sandwich at Bourbon. So, I went and live. I went. I didn't live. I went to um, Taiwan um and uh spent two weeks in taipei and then another week in saigon in vietnam just to see the uh the street food scene there which is mind-blowingly phenomenal just like i there's actually a netflix there's a netflix series called asian street food i've
1: seen it oh
0: god it's hard to watch so because you're having a new (laughs) you're having a
1: new opening do do we have a mission trip coming up soon i think so i think that would be a really good (laughs) idea because
0: you know i mean those are only two asian countries that i've been to so i think i need to go back but um so i got back from uh, i get back from that trip and immediately i was just like i want to do a viet so while i was in saigon I met this uh, chef, Nikki Tran. And so Nikki's got restaurants in Saigon and she has restaurants in, or a restaurant in Houston. And she's a hot mess, but she's a phenomenal chef. She wasn't, she's one of those people who was not a chef, not, not trained or anything. She just has that instinctual ability to make phenomenal food. And so she's got two restaurants in Saigon and we went to both of her places. And then, um, and one of these days I'm going to, she, she's going to come to Columbia and do, and cook with me. Uh, but she was at the time she was opening a place in Houston. And so after having her food and going and eating at some restaurants throughout Saigon with her, I came back and was just like, we need a, we need a Vietnamese chicken sandwich on the menu. So I came up with a chicken sandwich and that's my, at. I mean, we have a lot of great things on the menu at Bourbon. I was going to
1: say, I mean, you my, have a lot of good I, things I know, on the menu. But
0: my God, that, that chicken sandwich, that's, yeah, that would be my number one chicken sandwich. So, okay, outside of that, so if I'm going to go, if I'm going to leave my restaurants and choose dishes that I am like a go-to, there's a restaurant out on Garner's Ferry called Lotus. It is in the... Uh, That little shopping center in the parking lot of the Walmart.
1: Old Walmart, new Walmart.
0: The new one just a little bit further past the Lowe's on Garner's Ferry. Okay, so you pull into there, and then there's a small shopping center in its parking lot a little past the Popeye's there. And it's called uh, Lotus, and the chef owner of it is Laotian. But because he's kind of, a, I guess he's kind of uh, reticent to do nothing but Laotian food because most people wouldn't know it. He does Laotian, Vietnamese, and Thai. And he does like I don't even know if I could pick a single dish because he does. I mean, I, I honestly think that's like one of the most. That's that's the sleeper in town of of great restaurants because he is a phenomenal chef oh, presentation is the presentations are absolutely stunningly beautiful he does a laotian uh, sausage um which we actually which was funny because we did a laotian sausage when uh, we went down and did uh, charleston wine and food festival um lou hutto from loco barbecue was part of our group you know lou lou did a laotian sausage at one of the events that was spectacular so this is this guy's is, is is as good if not better, but I mean it's it's on the same level, but he serves it with like all the accoutrement that you would that is traditionally served with. So that's like that's my that's like high on my list right now of local like sleeper restaurants that nobody knows about.
1: Wow. That's a good one. I didn't know about that, but you know, one of the things that I'd love to to have, and and and, and it's you have this butcher shirt on today. I'd love to have like oh, a cushion we need, butcher. We here. need a butcher. We, I mean,
0: we need a butcher.
1: Uh, I just, to me, that's that that would just be the ultimate.
0: I think you know one of the reasons I would love for for Columbia to have an artisan butcher shop. Number one is so people could understand how good not Mm -hmm. lamb but sheep so my friend john jackson who owns comfort farms down in uh millageville georgia so john jackson is a uh uh, army ranger he named the farm after his uh platoon leader uh lieutenant comfort who was killed in action so and yeah so what this farm is for is for veterans with PTSD and other issues from, from having fought or two wars that did seem to me did nothing but screw up a bunch of young Americans. Um, what it does is it acts as a, a place for them to come and regain uh, their sense of responsibility because you know once you get out, after doing after doing the serious jobs that you do in the military, especially in these last two conflicts that we've had to come back to the States. And, and I, I, you know, you hate to, I hate to trivialize it by using, you know, the Rambo, you know, the first Rambo movie, you know, first blood, first blood. When he's like, you know, over there, they let, you know, I was in charge of, you know, million dollar equipment and over here, you know, they won't, you know, won't hire me for anything, but that, that's the, that's literally the truth of it. I mean, unless you're in an MOS in the military that, that, uh, is very specific to the civilian world you come back from having kicked in doors and you know Fallujah to what so these guys who had all these responsibilities and and that adrenaline rush and everything like that have to find a way to kind of reintegrate into society and and so John opened up this this farm specifically for that so he teaches these guys, you know, he puts these guys in charge of things on farms and teaches them how to farm and how to raise, you know, animal husbandry and all that stuff so they can go out and open their own places and stuff like that. Well, we do, so we do this big fundraiser every year. It's a boucherie traditional kind of, uh, so boucherie is a, like a Cajun, um, or I think it's kind of named after a Cajun thing, but it's a, it's a, uh, almost ritualistic, Time of year where you you kill a hog and you part the hog out and everybody cooks the hog in different ways and you end up with all these dishes from gumbo to neck bone stew to boudin. So he does this every year and we all go there and it's a it's a it's veteran focused. But we last year we did one of the sheep from his farm. And this is a three year old sheep and I think most people think of sheep. Uh, or I guess they don't think about it because it's not a meat that you can purchase anywhere. And it was by far, and this is speaking from from a chef perspective, it was by far the best meat I've ever had. We slow cooked it on a spit, the custom built spit that they made using engine, you know, motor mounts and everything that we f- were able to flip it over. We basted it throughout the night. That first slice when the, when when the, when the chef team stepped in and started slicing it off of there i mean the first bites we literally it's one of those cathartic moments where we all we've all been in the business like most of the guys that I was standing around this this sheep have been in the business for at least 20 years that first bite we all kind of met eyes like oh my god did i just
1: have the best piece of roast beef that i've ever, ever had and, and, and it's I a alive, sheep
0: and it's a sheep and so what's yeah and so what's horrible about this so my stepfather, who I reconnected with a few years ago, lives in Augusta. He, ra- he so for a long he's a veterinarian and and uh, was uh, one of the geneticists behind uh, that Angus beef. Mm-hmm. But so he was in the sheep business or the lamb business at the time and before he retired. And we were discussing this recently. I brought him to the Philharmonic here, and he was just amazed, like that I had discovered how good sheep are. And we were, we had a long discussion about just how horrible it is that nobody knows about this. Those, those sheep end up going into what I guess you would at the local store, your, your lamb and rice dog Dog food. food. It's not lamb. It's It's a three year old sheep and it is the greatest meat. So it's like and older animals in general. Like, so, um, dairy cows also phenomenal meat all ends up getting ground up and put into dog food and things like that so all these older animals are being wasted I don't want to say wasted because it does end up somewhere but I feel like there are so many great cuts that a, a local butcher if we could get a local and I hate to use the word artisan there's a lot of words I hate to use when it comes to food and that's one of them but I that's how we would describe it if we could get one of those so, old country
1: We'll use old country. Yeah. Old country. I mean, because that's the way it was. I mean, there was somebody. So there's a guy here in, in Colombia. There's a lot
0: of guys here in Colombia because they, they worked at the grocery stores. Well,
1: there, there's a guy here who's, who's, whose father was the butcher in the village that my mother grew up in. And literally, we connected. He's an older Swiss guy. And we we communicate. But his dad was the butcher in her town. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you went there and not only did you get all these great cuts of meat, but they always were making something something special out of the weird stuff. stuff. And and you're like, is don't ask, just eat it. And you're like, that was the greatest thing you ever had.
0: Yeah, I know. So uh, in um, Ridgeway, when uh, my buddy Tom had opened a little barbecue place. Yeah.
1: Remember that? Well, the one before that was even better. Smoked. Yes. Were you at the dinner that yes. they had, where they had the the goat out front and yeah. and to, um, Hastings,
0: yeah, Chris Hastings. Chris Hastings was yeah, there from the from Hot Fish Hot, Hot Fish Club. Yeah,
1: and they served as an appetizer, y'all. This is the best surf and turf I've ever had. These beautiful oysters. Yes. And this vinegar based barbecue, and they put a little piece of that vinegar based barbecue on top of that oyster, and you slurp it because seafood
0: and pork go together. Perfect. The ultimate surf and turf. It is. It is. Lobster and steak, got nothing on pork and any other type of seafood. No. So, hey, do you see Tom's opening a new place in uh, Georgetown? No. Between the antlers, follow them on Instagram. He has got an absolutely stunning little spot on, I just Georgetown. was there last weekend. Oh my god, he's opening it on in right on the water, uh, down uh, on Broad Street. A, yeah, indoor, outdoor bar. You when you look out, you see shrimp boats and everything. Oh my god, yeah,
1: yes. He must be going in the old Rainbow Room or whatever.
0: No, 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 no. no. This was literally just an an old like. Is it, this wasn't a Retail? restaurant. This wasn't. No, no. This is this is like away from it's it's off of that street but it's right on the water
1: so he must be up by the the seafood further it's up.
0: by the it's closer to the sti- uh plant. To the steel mill. okay yeah. so the other, way, the other way. way yeah
1: yeah because i was at the big tuna eating fried shrimp and drinking pbr this weekend yep.
0: but. no 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 so yeah so and he's got a great chef there so look forward to more pork and uh seafood combinations
1: i i, I still to me, I tell people all the time, and I, I've served it a bunch from that. I said, you'll never take the brine yep. along with that vinegar and that pork and that oyster, and you go, I
0: get it. Yeah, I get it. I get it. This is spectacular. Well, that's why we do the pork. So, so in January, we do the uh, the pig and oyster roast at the farm. That's why. And yet nobody... The problem is that... And we don't... I, I don't know if we do a great job of conveying to everybody. Like, you need to... When you get your plate of of pit cooked, you know, pork and all that stuff, you need to bring it to the oyster shucking table with you and enjoy them together, not separately. You don't eat your plate of barbecue and then come to the table and eat oysters nonstop. You have to combine them because that's to me is like the that's like the southern surf and turf that that you just can't beat. You really can't beat it.
1: Oh man, I just oh, getting
0: hungry. <laughs> <by that. laughs> right? Yeah. Hey, hey, Christian,
1: thank you so much hey, for being was here great. today. This is awesome. This, I don't even feel like I was
0: on a podcast. Th- this, is, <laughs> this
1: is this is th- this was awesome. I was glad you were be here. I mean, we. I hope people actually listen to this. I hope they do too. You know, really hope that we can do something <laughs> fun with this. Yeah. yeah, but really to get people excited about. Well, Send
0: me the link to it, and I'll make sure I post it on all our social medias and all that stuff because you know. We probably have more followers than you yeah, you probably did. <laughs> i'm grass my god! yeah you've like yeah, yeah, you right. been mayor for what a couple months oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah trust just, me i'm just a grassroots. <laughs> just a grassroots. are rooter. we all though, but hey it's, it's funny you say that though i mean but think back to when we first started back in the <clears throat> mid 90s i mean yeah, yeah, i remember i had to buy the gorilla remember the gorilla marketing book from, yeah yeah j j somebody but I mean that was like my that was like my playbook for the restaurants cuz I couldn't afford anything. I was just like, okay, I got to do I'm going to go through this book and see what pertains to rest, what would work for a restaurant and
1: 90 percent of it was word of mouth back then it really was and that's why customer service was so important yeah. because when we started off you couldn't you couldn't i mean you know the mail coupons what's the i can't yeah. think that that was a big thing i couldn't afford that no let alone i barely could afford my free times ad but damn i had to do it because uh, i had to have something we in didn't there.
0: we didn't even do that we couldn't afford it I was just talking to Jimmy Phillips down at Southern belly yesterday or day before yesterday. And and I remember like he was the guy that would, that would fax out our menu New. to businesses. Facts. He said, the word fax. I know <laughs> I haven't known a fax since 2000. And yet every bank in the world requires you to fax them something. I'm like, oh, did banks just stop innovating and like, 1998 99
1: banks are the only business i always say the bank is the only business that can go to sleep and wake up and still be making money
0: right i know (laughs) they're like they're like can you fax us uh we're gonna send you something can you fax it back to us i was like fax i i remember i i distinctly remember throwing my fax machine away in 1999 going well with the internet i don't need this anymore and they're still asking me to fax stuff to them I remember like buying wow. the first
1: one and people would fax in an order and i was like yes! oh man this is so right? cool
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: and we didn't even have a pos i mean pos changed the world
0: it did yeah but then it also it also allowed the irs to be able to track you easier I remember we ran That's long-
1: that's when I went from going to the bank 3 times a day to not going to the bank at all.
0: <laughs> I remember at Longhorn, we did we didn't have a POS at Longhorn. Like everything was uh, when I first started there, we everything was run on literally just calculators. At the end of the day, we would just use calculators. And like if you got your check, it was literally a handwritten check.
1: Handwritten check that never added up. Right. Never added. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. And uh, I hope to, hit, uh, hope to see y'all soon. Thanks, Christian. Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Leave the